the size of our bodies, dieting, you know, we're too fat, we're too thin. What really is the perfect body size? Well, it seems we have an unhealthy obsession with how we look and what we should look like. I did a quick Google search of current fad diets and returned 24 different types. Uh, There's the often written about Atkins diet. There's the grapefruit diet, the cabbage soup diet. What even is the cotton ball diet? It is big business. Just ask Jenny Craig or Weight Watchers. Uh, But we also have a real issue with eating disorders, uh, not just in New Zealand, but around the world, especially in the 15 to 29-year-old age group. Well, according to my next guest, we need a mind shift. In her new book, Fat Talk, Coming of Age in the Diet Culture, US journalist, author and podcaster Virginia Soldsmith looks at how the war on childhood obesity has caused children of all ages to absorb an onslaught of body shame from peers, diet culture, and most importantly, from their own parents. She challenges traditional narratives on healthy eating and body weight, offering up research and strategies to help parents name and navigate the anti-fat bias that exists in schools, doctors' offices, and around the family dinner table. Virginia is based in New York, and I spoke with her on Thursday. I started by asking her why she wants us to talk about fat and fatness differently, beginning by not using words like overweight or obese. The word obesity has its roots in a Latin word that means to eat oneself fat. So right away, you can see there's a stereotype and a really negative image of what it means to be in a larger body embedded in that word. And what we've seen happen as the medical community has embraced that language is those terms really get weaponized against folks in bigger bodies, making it more difficult for them to access health care. So what a lot of activists are arguing for and what I argue for in the book is that we actually need to reclaim fat. We need to stop being so afraid of that word, which has also been weaponized against many of us, which but which is really just a neutral body descriptor. You should be able to say someone's fat, just like you might say they're tall or short, or they have brown hair or blue eyes or any other physical trait that you might you know need to remark on. Um, and when we do that, we start to take away the negative connotations of the word. We really take away the bias that's embedded in it. And so it's an important way of starting to shift the conversation. Okay, people will have an issue with getting their head around this, I think. And and, and the anti-fat bias has been around for centuries. So how do you change it? Well, I think one thing we need to do is to start recognizing that this is a systemic form of bias. I think we often think of body size as something we should have total control over, even though the research shows quite clearly that dieting does not work for the vast majority of people and that whether or not you live in a fat body is due to genetics, it's due to environmental factors you have no control over. So we need to separate out the idea that body size should be something we're in control of and we're in charge of, and if we're not thin, we're doing it wrong. We need to get away from that. We need to recognize that actually there are powerful industries worth millions and millions of dollars that are entirely focused on perpetuating that bias because it helps them sell us products and drugs and surgeries and all sorts of things, and because it upholds social hierarchies. 
now I, I, we, we will talk about the correlation between weight and health shortly because I know that we hear a lot about how fat bodies can't be healthy bodies, which you right. talk about. But first, um, you know, most of us did grow up being taught that, that body size is something that we should have control over. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and you just touched on it there about the, the dieting and the money that people make and the fact that our body size is at least 60% genetic. Yeah, and I think people don't realize that. But if you look at your family tree, you can probably say, oh, yeah, there's been generations of people with, you know, and not everybody in a family is going to have the same body size, of course, but you'll notice some patterns. And I think it's important to note that when a family tends to be thin, we're quick to say, oh, yeah, they're just genetic. That's, you know, they're thin. There's nothing wrong with that. That's just how they're built. But when a family tends to be fat, we're looking at, well, what went wrong? Why? What, what are they doing wrong? What's the problem there with those people's bodies? Human body diversity is essential to our survival. It's normal. It's always been happening. And it's important to embrace that. Early in the book, you talk about Michelle Obama and and her Let's Move initiative. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. So Michelle Obama launched Let's Move um, during her husband's presidency as her central piece of legislation, her central um, initiative as a first lady. And what she did was a lot of making speeches, going around to schools, going around to different groups of students across the country, talking about the importance of exercise and of healthy eating, all of which is great, right? We do want kids to develop healthy relationships with exercise. I think any parent has a hope that our child will embrace vegetables at some point in their life, um, even though we know how difficult that can be. The problem is she talked about both of those goals as being necessary because of our, quote, childhood obesity epidemic. And when she used that framing, she immediately made that conversation a really unsafe place for any kid in any of those classrooms who was in a larger body. That child is sitting there going, oh, the first lady and the president of my country think that my body is a problem to solve, think that there's something wrong with me. So while it was, I think, very well-intentioned as a way of getting more attention on the need to overhaul the food supply, to improve the quality of school lunches, which is something she did have a major impact on and should be credited with, it also reinforced this idea that the worst thing a child can be is in a larger body, which perpetuated a lot of shame and stigma. And I've interviewed folks who grew up during those years and said, yeah, you know, like the jump rope competitions and the calorie counting assignments we've been given. There's a lot of what I call diet culture, these messages around how to make your body smaller. There's a lot of that that's still embedded in the way American schools talk about food and weight and health. You're you're not um, promoting being obese, though, are you? I'm promoting understanding that bodies come in lots of different sizes and that it's not a moral failing to be in a bigger body, and it's not even necessarily unhealthy. We need to step away from the assumption that anytime someone's in a bigger body, they are unhealthier than if they were in a thinner body. I mean, I think you can look at examples like people recovering from cancer treatment and understand that weight gain can often be really healthy. People who are weight restoring after losing weight during an eating disorder need to be gaining that weight. Often we congratulate weight loss and we're congratulating someone who's going through a divorce or some sort of traumatic situation where it's really difficult for them to eat. You might be congratulating someone's eating disorder or their lack of access to food. So we need to think much more about 
about understanding body size is just one aspect of our health and just one aspect of who we are, rather than thinking you can look at someone's body size and know everything you need to know about them. Yeah, got you. Uh, like, like the US, New Zealand has a real issue with childhood obesity. They, you know, we have the second highest rate of uh, in the OECD. Thirty nine percent of our children are obese. We also know that childhood obesity is associated with um, a, a range of health issues, including uh, diabetes and cardiovascular problems. With with statistics like that, don't we have an obligation to talk about it? What I think we have an obligation to do is figure out what those statistics are really telling us. We don't have any research showing a causal link between high body weight and the poor health outcomes you just listed. That's not to say it's never there, that weight and health are never related, but very often the picture is far more nuanced once we start to look beyond just body mass index. And we start to see that the groups of people who have the higher BMI and the poor poor health outcomes also tend to be people who are living with chronic oppression, who are lower income, who are dealing with access to health care. I mean, that's a huge issue for us in the States. Many people just simply can't get into a doctor in the first place and aren't, being, aren't able to afford the health care they need. So when you have these barriers to health built into the very fabric of your society, to say that what these kids need is to lose weight is missing just the entire bigger picture of all the issues that are going on that are impacting their health. And the other piece of it is we know that even if kids are bigger today, and even if we're seeing correlations between higher body weight and poor health outcomes, we don't have safe and sustainable ways for most people to lose weight. And with children in particular, the number one predictor of future eating disorder risk is experiences of weight-based stigma and teasing and childhood dieting. So if we take a big push, as Michelle Obama did, as many governments are, and say, we have to make this push on childhood obesity, we have to make kids thinner, we are actually putting their health at risk. If you are concerned about your child's future diabetes risk, heart disease risk, preventing eating disorders right now is the most important step you can take towards protecting their future. You talk about in the book about how healthy food is about privilege. Can you tell us a little bit about yeah, that? Sure. So, you know, healthy food, the way we think about it in modern diet culture, which is lots of vegetables, everything cooked from scratch, you know, grow your own if you can, shop farmers markets, all of this sort of picture of abundance of healthy food that a lot of us, you know, if I say healthy food, that's probably what you first start thinking about, luxurious salads and that kind of thing. All of that costs money. All of that costs time that requires somebody to have the the time to grocery shop, the time to meal plan, the time to execute these recipes and put these meals on the table. When you're a working parent feeding kids, whether you're a single parent household, a low income household, or even two upper middle class parents with plenty of resources, but just not a lot of time and kids with a lot of opinions about what they're going to eat, actually executing that vision of healthy eating can be really, really difficult. And again, for folks with more marginalizations, really impossible. And so if we want to improve people's relationship with food, we need to be thinking about how to remove those barriers, make it more accessible for folks to eat healthier. And this is something we can do without ever invoking weight in the conversation, right? I mean, everyone needs to be able to eat vegetables if that's a priority for them. We don't need to be reserving that conversation just for people who we think need to lose weight. 
so what we should be focusing on on teaching our children without using the the, the terms of talking about weight uh, teaching them about nutrition uh, and what that starts at home yeah it does and uh, you know i would even say for parents you can worry less about the details of nutrition What we know from the research is when kids have enough to eat, I mean, in the United States in particular, food insecurity, not having enough to eat is a far bigger concern and has a far bigger impact on kids' health than the issue of childhood obesity. And so when we start to think about, okay, I know that my kid is getting enough to eat. I can actually trust them over the course of a week. Not every meal, of course, my kids are six and 10. I can tell you not every meal includes vegetable, but if I have the privilege to be able to offer vegetables at most meals, to be able to model eating them myself. Over the course of the week, my kids are going to gravitate towards different food groups. They're going to get what they need. And more importantly, I'm teaching them to listen to their hunger and fullness. I'm teaching them to trust their bodies, to know that if they say no to something, that no will be respected in my house. All of that is setting them up for a healthier long-term relationship with food than if I sat there at dinner every night saying, you need to eat these three bites of broccoli before you get dessert because I don't want you to get fat. Oh, gosh. <laughs> I can put my hand up uh, for doing that with my children. And I think as most people... We've all probably, been there. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Gosh, the guilt, Absolutely. The guilt is washing over me. <laughs> um, so are you, are you saying that we should let the kids eat what they want? I'm saying kids need structure, but the... Sh- structure is to ensure they can eat enough to grow and thrive. The structure is not to deny them from eating how much they want to eat. So, you know, the method that I talk about in the book that has quite a lot of research to support it is a concept called division of responsibility, where parents are in charge of when meals happen and where meals happen. So you're figuring out which times a day do we eat and do we all sit down at the table to eat? Um, And you're also in charge of what foods go on the table. And that would include serving a variety of foods, of course, fruits and vegetables and, quote, healthy foods, but also having treats alongside that and not demonizing between your kids' favorite foods and the foods you're hoping that they'll learn to love, offering all of them in a sort of neutral context. But then once you get the food to the table and you say, right, it's dinner time, you know, everyone come to the table, your child is in charge of how much they eat, whether that's three servings of pasta, no servings of broccoli, only chicken. You know, last night, my one of my daughters ate only chicken, nor every other food on the table. That's all typical for them. You let them figure that out themselves. And you even let them decide of the foods you've offered, which foods are they going to eat at this meal? They don't have to eat something of everything. Right, but how do we regulate that with um, the fact that kids are bombarded with advertising for for sugar and and fast foods and 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 also the addictive nature of sugar? Wouldn't they just say, "Well, no, I'm you know I'm not going to eat this healthy food because I way prefer the you know the dessert that we're having." How do how do we allow our kids to make those choices when we know, say, for the you know, the addictive nature of sugar? Well, so the interesting thing about sugar is that it's not physically addictive. It's not alcohol. It's not heroin. And that's really important because the media has a different narrative about it. But when we look at the research, we see that rats only become, quote, addicted to sugar if sugar is restricted from them in the first place. Restriction breeds fixation. So if you have a lot of rules around how many cookies your child can eat or when they can have sugar, if there's a lot of anxiety in the household about how bad these foods are for you and how it's so terrible that kids eat them and they get crazy at the birthday parties and all of that, 
it is not surprising that children then behave like they are out of control around these foods and want to eat as much of them as they can when they do get access. That is a feature, not a bug. That is our bodies are wired to try to break through those sorts of restrictive rules and make sure we have access to food. Let's remember too that glucose is fuel for children. They need a tremendous amount of glucose to build their brains. It can come in lots of different forms. It doesn't have to only come in the form of candy, but we don't need to demonize sugar when it is in fact essential to them in a lot of ways. So we need to stop viewing sugar as the bad guy because the, for if nothing else, because when you do that, you ensure that's what your kids are going to want. And I've seen this in my own house. I've seen this in my reporting with other families. When you start to take a more balanced approach to it. When sugar is on the table, it's part of meals, but it's not something to fear. It's not something we have a lot of anxiety over. You will see even the foods that are heavily marketed to kids, the sugary cereals, the cookies, the chips, things like that. You will see kids be able to hone in and think, do I really like this or do I, can I take it or leave it? They'll get really selective about which sugar they get excited about. It can be kind of irritating because I'll finally have bought the giant box of Oreos and then no one in my house will want to eat them because they've decided they don't actually like them. But it's proof that kids really can be more discerning about this than we give them credit for if we're helping them stay in tune and trust their own bodies. That applies to not only children, but adults as well, you know. Absolutely. If you're told, you know, you can't have this or you shouldn't have this piece of cake or whatever, then when you do allow yourself to have it, you have several pieces of cake or you eat the entire packet of biscuits, don't you? It's like a mental thing. Oh, completely. I mean, I'm grouchy just thinking about not being allowed to have the cake. But the truth is, once I'm eating the cake, you know, maybe some days I want a big piece and some days I just want a few bites. And I always know there's more cake, so I don't feel anxious about it. Mm. On the days I eat a lot, that's great. I move on. On the days I don't eat a lot, that's fine too. As parents, parents listening now or grandparents who are listening, what are some of the key things they should remember when dealing with, with language, but also the whole issue of eating? I think it's really important to think about the language we're using and know that kids pick up on everything. So they know if you are uncomfortable with their bodies, they know if you are uncomfortable with how they're eating. And to start thinking about how can you talk about food in a more joyful manner, get away from some of these good and bad junk food sort of categories, that negative framing same with around bodies. Are you someone who regularly talks critically about your own appearance? Is that something you can stop doing in front of your kids? There's some nice research showing that even mothers with active eating disorders, when they were able to stop talking negatively about their bodies in front of their children, their kids were less likely to develop similar problems. So we can insulate our kids to some extent if we just choose our words a little more carefully. But I also want parents to know that they shouldn't be afraid of naming exactly what's happening. We need to get comfortable naming for our kids when we're seeing anti-fat bias, whether that's a TV show you're watching and the fat character is always the butt of the joke or the villain or the goofy sidekick. You know, there's a lot of children's media where fat characters are still routinely teased or demonized in some way. You can name that to your kids and say, I really don't like how they're treating the fat person. You know, they shouldn't be the butt of every joke. What do you think about this? And start to help our kids build these critical thinking skills around how bodies are talked about around them. And then you're going to see your kids really be off and running with this concept and able to navigate all of this a lot better. Mm-hmm. Probably one of the most powerful things you can do is is get rid of the scales in your house. Yep. 
Mm. Yep. I usually start with that. I'm glad you reminded me. Um, that's an important one. And it's really tough for folks. I mean, we have a lot of attachment to scales. They feel really necessary. The truth is nobody needs to be weighing themselves on a daily or weekly or probably even monthly basis. With kids, it can be useful to know their weight at, say, an annual checkup so you can make sure that their growth is on track. With kids, I think we're actually much more worried about drops in the growth chart, right? I mean, a kid should be growing and gaining weight. So if they're not, that can be a sign of some underlying health issue or, you know, with an older kid, an eating disorder developing. And so you do want to have an eye on that. Also, sometimes you need to know weight for dosing medication or car seats, things like that. But we don't need to be weighing kids with the frequency we do. We don't need to be weighing ourselves with the frequency that we do. And we don't need to be giving that number so much power. So reserving weigh-ins for, you know, occasional doctor's visits, and even then it's fine to ask not to be weighed. If you feel like it's not an appointment where your weight needs to be a part of the conversation, it's fine to ask to turn around on the scale and not see the number. You know, there's a a family in the book who had a scale in their house and their nine-year-old started weighing herself after lunch, before and after lunch. And if she gained weight after lunch, she would try not to eat dinner. And I think it's important for parents to know just like, you know, here in the States, we have a big conversation around should you have guns in your house? And if so, what steps are you taking to protect your kids from them? Scales are also quite dangerous to kids in terms of what they can represent and how kids can become fixated on them. So it's really something to think about. If you're going to have it, I would recommend keeping it stashed in a closet where your kids are not encountering it daily. I'm speaking to Virginia Soul-Smith. Her book is called Fat Talk, Coming of Age in the Diet Culture. Virginia, if your child came to you and said, I'm fat, what should we be telling them? Well, the first thing is, if they are fat, I want you to say, yep, that's great. We know lots of great fat people. Being fat is not a problem. If they're not fat, you might say, oh, you know, I think you're actually thin or in a straight-sized body. Um, But what makes you bring that up? In both scenarios, the next part of the conversation is, is this something you're worrying about? Tell me what you think about with fatness and start to understand, you know, sometimes we say I feel fat when we mean I feel mad or I feel stressed or I feel tired or hungry or, you know, there's other feelings underneath it. And so giving kids that language to talk about what's really going on can be useful. Sometimes it is going to be a fat kid saying, I'm fat. I'm getting teased for it. That is not okay. I don't feel safe going to school. And you need to step in and advocate for them and support them. So use this as a jumping off point for a larger conversation. Look for ways to emphasize, no matter what your child's body says, their body is not the problem. It's a culture that tells us that there's something wrong with being fat that's the problem. And you are here to support them and help them navigate that. Can we talk about the effect of social media? Because It's a battle, and especially for our children, when they are bombarded with images about how they look. Social media is a primary route by which kids are exposed to anti-fat bias and diet culture. There is a ton on TikTok and Instagram about, obviously, diets, about, you know, how to get certain body types. There's a lot of smoke and mirrors. And we know from research that even when something's labeled as photoshopped, like our brains don't really understand it that way. We still think that this perfect airbrushed, carefully lit, carefully posed image is this person's actual body. And that's what we should be striving for. 
that being said, I think about social media in a similar way I think about sugar. Restriction will breed fixation. So as much as as a mother, I would love to throw the phones into the sea and never let my children anywhere near it. I know there's going to come a point where it does make sense for them to be engaging with it. And so what I'm doing now with kids who are six and 10 is thinking about how do we develop these critical thinking skills. And I'll give you an example. My older daughter was playing a video game on her iPad, which was a game. It was like penguins jumping on and off an island, like clearly a game for children. And she came over to me one day and she said, you know, there's this ad that keeps popping up and it was for weight loss pills in a children's video game. Now, weight loss pills have no place being advertised to children. I mean, if you want to talk about advertising to children, that makes me angry. That makes me angry. Of course, it was really tempting to say like, that's it. No more iPad. We're done. But instead I said, you know, oh man, that's weird. What do you think about that? What are you noticing? And we talked about what we saw in the picture. And then every time the ad would come up, she'd come back and be like, can you believe it says expert approved? What expert would approve this ad? You know, I can't believe they're showing this to kids. And so she was then engaging with the media in a critical way. It wasn't something she was internalizing. And, you know, again, she's only 10. We haven't gotten to real social media yet, but that's the kind of thing I want parents to be thinking about. How do we engage with our kids about the media they're consuming, help them start asking questions and start being critical about it, and even start thinking, do I want to curate my feed so I'm not following any of that? Social media can also be a lifeline to fat kids in particular. If they don't have fat positive community where they live, it can be a way to say, hey, you love you love running. Let me show you Martinez Evans, this incredible 300 pound marathon runner. You know, you love rock climbing. Let's find a fat rock climber. Let's find a fat dancer to follow. And so you can see people who look like you living joyful, full lives. I love the story about um, Sierra, and a, a young woman in, in yes. your book, and, and how she was in treatment, and then before she left, she went and unfollowed a whole lot of influencers who had talked about weight, diet, fitness, and beauty, all of them gone. Um, and I suppose that that's one way of controlling or maybe teaching our kids, and actually adults as well, stop following these people. Yeah, it's free to unfollow. I mean, it really is. And it will free up so much mental space that, um, you know, that you just won't even realize you were devoting to all of this if you just let yourself off the hook from having to look at it. It's great. Mm. Can we just get back to uh, fatness and health? You touched on it earlier about the you know the correlation between uh, weight and health and, and separating weight and health. What happens if a, a doctor, and you know, it does happen a lot, says you need to lose weight, you need to, you know, this is not good for your health. What is your response when, when there actually is a problem? Well, the first thing is to know that often that is where doctors go because doctors have been trained to go there, not because that's necessarily going to be what's going to serve your health. And, you know, we have a big problem right now with pharmaceutical industry manufacturing weight loss drugs and really influencing the medical profession to push weight loss and to push these medications on folks when they may not be the best fit. So the first thing I would say to a doctor is, okay, I hear you want to talk about weight loss. Before we get there, 
what would you prescribe to a thin person with my condition and my set of health concerns? Someone who you wouldn't jump to weight loss, what would you tell them to do? If it's something like knee pain, would they get a prescription to physical therapy, you know, or would they get medication that's not being offered to the fat patient? And it's perfectly reasonable as the fat person to say, I want to start there. I want to start with those treatment options for my actual condition before I go down the weight loss path. You know, if that doesn't fly or if, you know, you have that conversation and it's still coming back to weight loss, I think it's also reasonable to say, I mean, most of us have tried it. We know it hasn't worked for us. I know about the high failure rates of dieting in the literature, and I want to talk about my health separate from my weight and understand what we can do for my health that isn't about weight loss. Because what we also know is you can see tremendous benefits in heart health, in blood sugar management, all of these, again, the long-term health issues that we always link to weight, you can see big improvements in all of those numbers by changing lifestyle habits, exercising more, eating healthier, even if weight does not move. So maybe it's a conversation about lifestyle changes and your doctor can support you in brainstorming how to exercise more, how to change your diet. Again, we don't have to have that conversation under the framework of weight loss. Earlier in my in my years in my early twenties, I was I was a, I was what you'd call probably obese. I never wanted to exercise; it was a lot harder. There is sort of no denying that actually, when you are carrying so much more weight, everything is a lot harder. It's a lot harder to get out and exercise. Um, you do feel uh, you know the the aches and you have the pains more than if you weren't carrying as much weight. Well, I don't know. I mean, I've been thin and I'm fat now, and I have a much healthier relationship with exercise now than when I was exercising in a really disordered way to maintain my thinness. Um, I had more knee problems then. Um, I had more migraines then. Mm -hmm. You know, health is so complicated and multifaceted. One person's experience may absolutely be being in this bigger body. It feels harder to move. Someone else's experience may be in this body, I need some extra support and accommodations. I certainly need a different sports bra than I needed 20 years ago, for mm -hmm. example, so that I can move comfortably. Needing that support in order to pursue movement isn't a failing. It isn't something to apologize for. It's just recognizing different bodies need different things, and that's fine. So a lot of this is how the culture perceives fat people around exercise. It is absolutely true that fat folks often don't feel safe going to a gym because they know they'll experience harassment there, um, because they know that their bodies might be targets for all sorts of unwanted commentary and advice, and that doesn't feel safe. So I do think it's on the medical profession to think about how can we support folks in the bodies they're in, finding ways to move with joy and comfort. What extra support might they need to access it? That's a very different conversation than saying like, we'll just lose weight and then you will like exercise. I mean, for one thing, how are people supposed to lose weight if you're like, you know, it's like becomes a chicken and an egg thing. Mm. So I think it's important to say like, is it the weight itself or is it the way my body is viewed and treated by the world that makes this feel harder? And very often, it's more to do with the way our bodies are perceived and the way the world is not built to support our bodies in public spaces and, you know, in a chair size, any of those sorts of things, than it is our body itself being the problem. Right. Who are you hoping will read this book, Virginia? 
Well, we definitely geared the book towards parents, although I'm certainly hoping that teachers, doctors, really anyone who works with kids in any capacity will read it. Um, you know, because the title is Fat Talk, I think some folks assume it's mostly for parents of fat kids. I definitely want this to be a resource for parents of fat kids because parents of fat kids experience so much shame and stigma and do have special work to do to make their kids feel safe and loved in their bodies. But I also want parents of thin kids to read this book because we have a really important job to do in raising thin kids to be good allies to folks in bigger bodies and in raising our thin kids to understand that they may not always be thin. Bodies change and that's normal and not something to be feared or to feel bad about. So I think really anyone who works with is around kids of any body size, there's something in this book for you. What sort of reaction have you had to the book so far? Well, you know, so the U.S. version came out in a- at the end of April and, you know, made the New York Times bestseller list. So we can definitely say the book is working. Um, but yeah, it also has triggered a ton of angry, you know, there's a lot of trolls that come out of the woodwork with a conversation like this um, and a lot of pushback um, from people who I think just feel... You know, there's a lot of folks who are working really hard to hang on to thinness, and it feels really uncomfortable to be looking at this. I think people don't want to reckon with the ways in which they've caused harm to other people. So I think that's really uncomfortable. But I will say I'm super encouraged. I mean, every single day since the book gets out has come out, I've been hearing from readers talking about the positive impact it's had on them. And especially I'm hearing from doctors, I'm hearing from researchers, and I'm hearing from teachers all saying this is going to help me do my job better and, you know, provide better, better care, better, you know, make my classroom safer. Like this is something that so many people in those professions have been wrestling with and this is giving them a way to start the conversation. So that's super exciting. Virginia Soul Smith there and her book is Fat Talk, Coming of Age in the Diet Culture. And Virginia is also uh, the host of the uh, very popular anti-diet podcast, Burnt Toast.